ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello, I'm Natasha Mitchell. Welcome to Big Ideas, your front row seat to some of the best live events around the world and across Australia. What does it take to write a rock music hit? It is a lot harder than you think. Just ask Midnight Oil's guitarist, Jim Magini. Remember there's a song we had, I did a demo of it with Martin from our band. It was good music and it had all the elements of a sort of a good Midnight Oil song, but the lyrics that I wrote were just terrible. They were just terrible. I thought they were so bad. And we recorded the backing track and we had to kind of get on a plane the next day and go and play in America or something. But then came in Midnight Oil's drummer, Rob Hurst. He put the finishing touches on what would become the song Hercules. And Rob walked in and he went, oh, I know, this, I know what this is about. This is about uh, the Rainbow Warrior. And, you know, here comes the Hercules. He just, he, here come the submarines sinking South Pacific dreams. And it was just, ah. And that was like, that's when I really realised that, oh, my God, this is very potent, this group of people that can come up with something like that. I couldn't come up with that. And so a hit was born, to be a fly on the wall for that moment, hey? And on Big Ideas, you can be today. We're heading into the writer's room with four Australian rock legends, a panel on the joys and pitfalls of songwriting. From the 2023 Addy Road Writers Festival in Sydney are Midnight Oil's Jim Magini, Reg Mombasa, founding member of bands Mental As Anything and Dog Trumpet, Amanda Brown, violinist for the iconic indie band The Go-Betweens and an award-winning screen composer. And leading the panel is host Murray Cook, who's played in the Warumpi band Midnight Oil and Mental As Anything. And a heads up, there is some spicy language here, of course, because it's rock and roll. Here's Murray. Good afternoon, Jim, Reg and Amanda. It's a big privilege and honour to sit here with you brilliant people to talk about our common love, which is writing and performing songs. So the subtitle of the forum is the well-known quote, Good Composers Borrow, Great Composers Steal, which is attributed to Igor Stravinsky, who himself borrowed from traditional Russian dances and folk music, as did other great composers such as Bartok, Hayden and Mozart. We all hear modern songs and sometimes think, hmm, that sounds a bit like or or even highway robbery. So many modern songs have been pilfered from classical uh, folk and jazz melodies. For example, Packerbell's Canon in D has been flogged to death by contemporary songwriters, hoping that pedantic classical nerd quotient in society is suitably low enough. And the 70-year copyright limit expiry means open plunder. Of course, we now often hear about modern songwriters suing each other for breach of copyright. The most recent case, of course, being uh, the Ed Sheeran versus Marvin Gaye case. And in Australia, the sad case of men at work down under sued by the copyright owner of Kookaburra sitting in the old gum tree for a single phrase used in a solo. So in this day and age, a hit song is a goldmine, hence the exponential rise in mostly justified but sometimes questionable litigation. Fantasy records even sued the great John Fogarty for writing Old Man Down the Road, saying it ripped off his own credence tune, Run Through the Jungle. So he got sued for ripping off his own song. Incidentally, I just read that Here, Here Comes the Sun, written by the late great George Harrison, who of course was also pinged for plagiarising My Sweet Lord, has just achieved an astonishing billion hits on Spotify. Congratulations, George, and check the 10 quid is on its way to your family. <laughs> OK, so the first known decision of what we, uh, we now call copyright infringement, this might interest you, Jim, 
and reached with your Irish roots, was made in 6th century Ireland by King Diamond MacChibail of Tara, when Colum Chile, an Irish monk, later known as St Columba, visited Abbot Finian of Moville, his old instructor and mentor, and secretly copied a Zalter of the Psalms uh, in one night, allegorically under a miraculous light, causing a feud over who owned the replica. King Diamond's judgment was, to every cow belongs her calf, therefore to every book belongs its copy. That is, old Abbot Finian owned the facsimile. So the Battle of Cool Dremna was later fought over this ruling with over 3,000 casualties. So from right back to early times, songs have been written by individuals, partnerships and teams for pleasure, prestige, patronage and profit. Henry VIII himself was a songwriter of note and he loved a good jam session and had a stable of minstrels. Although I'm sure he turns in his grave every time a Mr Whippy Van drives past. <laughs> and Frederick the Great of Prussia had an elite team that included Bach himself. In more recent times, you've seen the phenomena of Tin Pan Alley, the Brill Building, and the Motown Corporation churning out songs for the star performers of the day, right up to contemporaries such as Beyonce, Rihanna, and Taylor Swift, with their legions of writers all vying for the next big hit. And yet, we still have the singer songwriters like Tom Belaine, Tom Waits, Tupac, Ed Sheeran, Elliot Smith, Lana Del Rey, Billie Eilish, Baker Boy, Emily Waramara, and the great Bart Willoughby, to name a few, who write songs from their personal experience, even dare say for the love of it. And then we have songs like K-San, My Island Home and I Was Only 19, written about someone else's experience. I always encourage an authenticity and true life stories in prison songwriting. So does a song lose its power or credibility by being written vicariously? We might talk about that later if we get time. And some songs are sincerely written in tribute to another's greatness or influence. For example, Brian Wilson wrote Don't Worry Baby as a homage to the Ronettes Be My Baby, a song that blew young Brian's mind, written and produced by his idol, Phil Spector. Other examples include Jonathan Richmond, Velvet Underground, Master Blaster by Stevie Wonder, Bob Dylan's Song for Woody, The Replacements, Alex Chilton, and of course, Bernie Hayes by McBodybag. <laughs> Wish Bernie was here. On the Songbirds 3 prison album, which is available here, this magnificent album, this is the third one. It's available here at the Black Books uh, sale, and also Rich and Jim, I think, have bought some merch. Some of the, the new albums, and congratulations, Amanda, Jim, and Reg, on your new your new albums. It's good to see us old folks still putting stuff out. It's fantastic, and they get better with age. But no one, yeah, that's right. It's all about the young people these days, isn't it? Um, so on the Songbirds Three, there's a song uh, we wrote together with a lady called Rania, who's a 25-year-old Syrian refugee, and she loved Jim Morrison, and she found his voice and music a way to help tolerate incarceration. She asked me to arrange it and perform it to sound like the doors, like twist my arm. So you'll hear that song, song for Jim on there. It sounds exactly like, you know, a combination of all the great doors song, which was a lot of fun to do for me. So some writers are more relaxed, even flattered by imitation. For example, Ray Davies once said, the funniest thing was when my publisher came to me on tour and said, the doors had used the riff for all of the day and all of the night for hello, I love you. I said, rather than sue them, can we just get them to own up? My publisher said, they have, that's why we should sue them. Jim Morrison admitted it, which to me was the most important thing, said Ray. And, and of course, uh, the most important thing is to actually take the idea somewhere else, said Tom Petty, after it was proved that Sam Smith's big hit song, Stay With Me, was almost identical to Won't Back Down. I find his, his attitude inspirational, though not so remunerative. Finally, most plagiarisms are usually committed unconsciously or subconsciously. I think George Harrison was a good you know, case. I think he was quite embarrassed to find it. You know, he'd done that. Okay, so um, 
Later time for many we might discuss the premise. Does a song lose its value and authenticity if it's written purely for commercial gain? Can songwriting teams write a classic song? Is originality, quirkiness and brio being buried under a pile of robotic formulae, even AI-generated radio YouTube fodder? Over to you, Ms Amanda. What are your thoughts on the fine line between theft, tribute and taking the original idea further into uncharted original territory? Man, I'm straight in the deep end. <laughs> this is something I deal with on a fairly regular basis because even though I've just put out an album of songs, I'm actually a, a screen composer is my day job. So I'm writing music for film and TV. And in that medium, we have a thing called temp music where editors lay in temporary music while they're cutting the film. And a lot of the time, directors, producers, pretty much everybody working on the film gets very attached to that temp music and they love it. And when you do something different, they that they sometimes don't take kindly to that. So we, as screen composers, we are constantly treading that fine line between making something similar but not plagiarism, obviously, not a suable offence. I think that happens in the advertising jingle writing world a lot too. With songwriting, not so much. I think it's kind of like um, you absorb all the music that you've loved through your life growing up and it inevitably becomes part of your creative DNA in a way. And whether that's in regard to lyric writing or structure or even just the, the sound of a song. So I'm, I'm going to leave it there for the minute. Jim, what do you think? Yes, well, I've, I'm kind of suffering from imposter syndrome sitting up here because I don't even think I'm even a songwriter, but I actually am because I'm just a fan of music and I, I don't really know much about songwriting except I think it's about bewilderment and transcendence, really, when you write. It's not about um, trying to, you know, have a hit. I mean, you can do it that way if you want, but maybe I've done that that way unconsciously, but I just know how music affects me and I think that's how you write songs, it's like you're inspired to the point of, of sound or a chord change or a riff, you know, listen to River Dee Mountain High or something like that, that's the most monumental riff of all time, you know, it's fantastic. Pete Seeger said something like, songs are like laws, people are always inventing new laws from old laws to sort of suit the modern times and I think songs are like that too, they're they can be rewritten. Look, at he was a friend of mine, that bird song. I played it the other night. And that's a really old traditional folk song. Bob Dylan, you know, went to Ireland and he actually stole a lot of Irish songs. He admitted it from the Clancy Brothers and people like that. And a lot of that ended up going into his sort of 60s oeuvre. So I think it's, it's just part of storytelling. It changes as it goes. And whether there are laws that come in and protect that, I don't think you really can. It's an interesting sort of area, though. That's all I've got to say. It's a fine line, isn't it? You know, um, what do you think, Red? You were telling me that you ripped yourself off. Tick, tick. Uh, yeah, I did. Um, I realised. I, 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 I mean, the thing is, if you, if you're a songwriter, you, you often have the anxiety if you come up with a reasonable melody. You think, oh, I've probably stolen it from someone else. I mean, sometimes you have, and sometimes you haven't. But I stole from myself, and uh, I hadn't realised it. I had a song called um, Lord and Lady. Pumpkin on a on a dog trumpet previous dog trumpet album and the album we've just released is, is a song called Tudor Blues which is a an instrumental and uh, then I realised I'd stolen the melody so I I've got hold of a lawyer and I'm taking action against myself 
Uh, I'm hoping to make some money out of it. So, uh, <laughs> but I mean, I mean, all, all art, whether it's music or or writing or or, or uh, painting, it's it's all built on previous artists or or, con, or contemporary artists as well. So, it's everything's you know resting on the shoulders of stuff that's come come before. So I, I, I don't mind the idea of stealing or being influenced by other stuff, as long as it's not too blatant. I mean, as you said, you know, a lot of Bob Dylan's melodies were stolen from old folk songs. Yeah. Who's got the copyright on the Bible? Because probably the oldest song in the world would be um, Rivers of Babylon. So Boney M probably um, <laughs> should be... Should be sued because the words to, the words are from a, a psalm that was written about fifth or sixth century BC. So yeah, someone could make some money out of that. God, God might make money out of that. Yeah, well he, he might, but he didn't write the Bible. It was written by humans, as far as I know. Damn it! Divinely inspired, perhaps, but still humans. But do you guys think, and back to you, Amanda, like do you guys think, you know, sometimes it's good to 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 list stuff out of things you, you admire and maybe take them a little in a, in a different direction. I know part of our songwriting uh, workshops, we often get people, they write lyrics and say, look, I haven't got a melody, I can't really think of anything. Why don't you sing like a Rihanna song for it or something and then eventually we'll just change the chords and the bass line and eventually we'll come up with something new. Is that a process that you go through? Sometimes you think, look, I'm going to write a song that's got um, horses in it, so I'll go, dum, 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 you know what I mean? Um, you know, I'll borrow it for some Western, you know, soundtracks or something like that. Do you, do you go for that and then change it to something original? Not, not so much that, but definitely borrow elements of things. And in fact, I was doing some research because I'm going to do a sonic journey with my partner, Simon, on the ABC about the songs of James Bond. And I was reading about Duran Duran's View to a Kill and the creation of that song. And they just went into the studio with the producer who was the great bass player from Chic, Bernard. Do you know his second name? Edwards. Bernard. Bernard Edwards. And the, and, and the drummer was like, I'm just going to play the drum beat from Honky Tonk Woman. And you listen to View from a Kill and it's exactly that beat. I think that's probably more the most common way that people appropriate little pieces pick from parts from songs like magpies and turn them into something different? Well, Jim's a bit like that. I've, um, I was admired in I, I, I Want to Be the One by Midnight Oil where he puts in that a little riff straight out of um, West Side Story, which is, which is great. It just comes out of, of the blue and it's this great, fantastic song and then all of a sudden there's this little... Uh, Leonard Bernstein riff in there. What do you reckon, Jim? What was it? Well, uh, that was the first gig I ever did, playing West Side Story well, on, a, on a bush bass at the school concert hall, the assembly hall. <laughs> you heard the it first gig. <laughs> and um, I, I had it was a broomstick and a tea chest and a piece of string. And I just went, I just went for it. It was like, it kicked ass. <laughs> but the song, so it might have gone in there, you know, at that time, I suppose. But I actually didn't write that. I think Rob Hurst wrote that. He just hummed it to me. So I think he was quite a fan of the old musicals and things like that. Well, I know, Hursty, you know, when I was in the band, we were huge Bugs Bunny fans, so... Um, yeah, yeah. What's that song? Um, turn it off the light. That lyric... Cold, cold change. Cold, cold change. Yeah, turn it off the light. It's like uh, Muggsy when he goes, turn it off the light. <clears throat> you know, it's a love Muggsy, you know, in uh, Bugs Bunny. Mm. And um, 
another bug is Bernie reference. I, I, I think I picked up with Jim that um, he, he's into the TS I think it, you know, the change from the major to the minor. In the dead heart, you hear the do 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 do, and then it goes to the major. And I said, were you influenced by that Bugs Bunny cartoon with that little cave guy? <laughs> when he's getting chased by the dinosaur, and he goes, which is a piece called Fingal's Cave, and I think it's by Hyde or someone like that. Is I it? just used Menace. to love the time signature of that when I was a kid. I couldn't, it kept slipping. Like nine eight or something. It's in this strange. It was amazing. Time signature. It did, it, and it seemed to sort of follow the movements of the tectonic plates that the that the duck was walking through, or the dinosaur, whatever it was. So is Murray actually right about the Bugs Bunny influence? Yeah. I, actually, now I think about it. <laughs> well, let's face it. I, I think most of us were introduced to classical music through Bugs Bunny. You think about it. You know, like all that like, guy, like, 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 the the the. Elmer Fudd when he's, you know, the, the Viking in, in the opera. You should get a job as a copyright lawyer, Murray. <laughs> yeah. Picking, picking um, stealings. Well, I think, you know, a lot of people, you know, a lot of people plunder classical songs um, because of the 70-year copyright limit, basically. You know, it's open plunder, I think, you know. You can just go, you, know, you can do whatever you like. Yeah. I mean, I've got a whole list of songs here that were, were actually uh, plundered from, um, from classical songs. I think, uh, I mean, can you think of any, any at all, uh, Amanda, that come to mind? No, but I, I, I think we should move the conversation away from plunder and plagiarism and onto perhaps more inspiring things like the muse and inspiration. What, do you, inspiration. what do you think? I think so. I think it's a really good it's This is making me paranoid, this conversation. <laughs> well, I mean, it can be just slight borrowing. I mean, sometimes if you play a song, you know, one of your favourite songs and just take the chord progression and then you can come up with a completely different melody over the same chord progression. Yeah. Exactly right. It's what makes a song tick. It's like, that's why I get out of bed in the morning. You listen to a song and you kind of go, God, that's good. How does that work? And you, and you sort of sit at the piano or something. You try and figure out the moves and like a little modulation. Or it might be a song like Caroline No, you know, the, the great Beach Boys song. It's got the best middle eight of all time written in. It's just, I don't know what he did, but it's... It just slips into it like butter. It's just unbelievable and it's so inspiring. And you sit at the piano and try to work it out. It's really complicated. It's like, but um, it's a classical mu music kind of chord movements and modulations and that stuff is uh, the, the, the real thing of songwriting. It's just to get those little moves. You might steal it actually, but you, it never will be the same because you're different to the person that wrote it and that it will never, your influences and your, your cultural background and your upbringing will be bring a whole different thing to the table. So I'm not sure that it's ever going to be quite the same, even if you, even if you do rip it off. You know, I mean, it's, it'll all come out different and, and people will have an objective view of it, which will all be coloured by your persona. And, uh, and being inspired by things is just what it's all about. I don't think you can sort of stop listening to things and, oh, I better not be influenced by that. I just don't think that'll, that, that'll fly, will it? Yeah, well, uh, I know you and I have a great love of uh, Brian Wilson. You know, he was influenced by everything from Doo Wop, you know, the Four Freshmen to, to Four Jazz, freshmen. to, you know, to Debussy. I've got the uh, Brian Wilson. Have you got that Brian Wilson piano album where he just plays the songs on piano? No. No, I should get it. It's incredible. It sounds, if you listen to it, it's where you're listening to, like, Debussy or... It's just amazing. Or, you know, Bernstein or so. It's just, just... I've got Benny Anderson from ABBA's piano record. Yeah, well, Benny was, Benny was a genius. He's really great. It's really something else. Benny was underrated. We'll talk about... Ab Benny, Benny, oh. Yeah, Benny was a What about Bjorn's guitar work? Incredible. Um, the great composers to me, like Brian Wilson, 
uh, even Paul McCartney, John Lennon, they just bring stuff together. All of you guys are in bands that have brought lots of influences. The Mentals, for example, you know, to me, you know, you've brought so many great influences together, like your Handel Taylor, your Hawaiian, you know, Rhythm and Blues. That's what made the Mentals so great. You know, they went from, went from all different, so many different uh, things going in there, but still good to dance to and good to sing along with and great lyrics. What do you reckon? Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Moran. <laughs> you'll, you'll get there, Rich. You'll get there one day, mate. Yeah. One day, yeah. Well, well, I mean, uh, this is slightly off, the, off that, that subject, but another sort of slightly stealing thing is what about the robots writing songs in the style of artists and, and doing it so convincingly that some of their fans now prefer the robot songs to the real ones, which, and that's starting to happen. So what do you reckon about that? Well, I just heard a version of um, Alone Again Naturally, uh, the, the great Gilbert O'Sullivan song sung by Paul McCartney. It's an AI. It's incredible. It's a beautiful song, but with Paul's voice, it just goes to another level. So that was quite good. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, doesn't it take all the fun out of it? Oh, of course <laughs> it like does. Of course it does. No, no it's it is. Like, it's, it's quite it's, disturbing. It's, but it's, it's like this whole thing of what people like. It's someone, I read someone wrote the first chapter of their book and they got AI to write the rest of it because they couldn't be bothered finishing it because they were a good starter but a bad finisher. <laughs> and, it, and it all was amazing and so you know and then people liked it and yet it's it's sort of like well no one cares what goes into the the pudding they just want to eat the pudding but it's the fun bit isn't it writing it i mean that's the whole thing I, i'd hate for that to be taken away from me do you think the robots enjoy writing things i don't know they they, they, they could probably convince themselves they did they'd find a, a a wikipedia thing that would say that they would I think they're too busy hoovering the entirety of all created music and once they've absorbed that, then they'll enjoy making their own yeah. patchwork versions of those things. Yeah, I'll just get a pair of wire cutters and cut it off of the PowerPoint. It's <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, it is disturbing, but um, you'll, never, you'll never, like I said before, you're never going to have the... Um, the input of someone like, you know, a Tom Waits or a Tom Verlaine or, you know, or a Bart Willoughby, you know, you're never going to get that, that authenticity from an AI. It's just something, I don't know how you can tell. How do you reckon you can tell, Reg? What do you, you know, between... Well, I don't think people can't tell. I mean, the, the fans of some of these people... So I read something about Drake, the pop star, the guy writing this article. His son was a fan of Drake and the son preferred the robot versions to Drake's new stuff. So what's going on there? Crazy kids. So look, I was going to say, we'll get onto the topic. Um, like Amanda said, I think it's good to talk about what makes a song really unique. And I, I picked three songs, and I don't think you guys may, may agree, but to me, the three songs, I always think of songs that really sound different, that just take you away to another world. One for me was um, See Emily Play by Pink Floyd, and some of Sid Barrett's earlier work, and even songs like Black Knight by um, Deep Purple, which I later found out ripped off the Blues Magoos. And Ricky Nelson's his song Summertime, the same riff. So um, nothing sacred. But you think of all the songs, you know, like um, The Rain, The Park and, the, and Other Things by The Castles, another, another song that just takes you away. The ones I, one, one I chose from The Mentals that I really love, and it, every time I listen to it, I listen to it through headphones last night, it's just a masterpiece. It's uh, Berserk Warriors. Reg, what do you reckon? Uh, yeah, no, my, my brother wrote that one, and that's one of my favourite mental songs we, we, we still play it we, we don't play with the mentals anymore we've got a band called dog trumpet but we pretty much play that one 
every night. My brother likes jazz and he actually did, he went to the con for, I think, six weeks or something. So, you know, <laughs> he, he knows a few jazz chords. So it's, it, I, I'm uh, pretty much a simpleton, you know, musically. I'm pretty much a three, three chord folk player. So having to play Berserk Warriors is quite tricky for me. You, you should know, you've played it, Murray. The part that you came up with was brilliant. That's another thing I think, you know, about uh, Greedy Smith was, he used to always say to me, oh, you're a really good keyboard player, and he was always paranoid. But I said to him, mate, it doesn't, it's not about being a good keyboard player, it's about being the brilliant parts that you put into the songs, you know, the arrangements you come up with, and I'm sure Jim would agree with that as well. You know, I think Pete Townsend once said, I don't want to get too good on the piano because it might ruin my songwriting. I think John Lennon also said that. Yeah, it's, it's sort of the left hand of the piano player always gets in the way of the bass player. <laughs> but the, I used to like Richard Wright from Pink Floyd because he just played really simple parts that were really effective and there was nothing much going on but they were just the glue that held the whole thing together. I, I loved the way he didn't play. Yeah, look, uh, yeah he, he, was, he was an incredibly underrated great keyboards player. But you know, to me, to me that, you know, some of the heroes are not so much the technical geniuses, it's the guys who put the parts in, you know, the parts that are memorable, the little counter melodies and all that stuff. Would you agree with Amanda with that? Yeah, I would, I would. That's what makes a band a band, I guess, in, rather than a bunch of session musicians. Not that they can't come up with some, some good stuff as well, but there's something about the idiosyncrasies and the personalities of the band. And a band is sort of like a family because you all know each other really well and you, you feel relaxed enough to try stuff out. And that's where I, I think that's a sort of environment where people can come up with those intrinsic, melodic, harmonic, rhythmic parts that take a song to the next level. Yeah, and a lot of it's relatively accidental. It's yeah. just playing, you play yeah. the chords and then... Accidental yeah. or just ineptness in some cases. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and there's that element of the, <laughs> as you're saying, Murray, about songs that affect you. It is, it is a mysterious, magical sort of thing. It's not, not something, if you know, if you could... If you could write down the instructions, you'd be able to come up with hit songs very easily, but you can't. It's, it's uh, mysterious. Yeah, well, collaboration's a wonderful thing. It's like, you know, sometimes you can't write it all and someone else can just fill in the gaps. I remember there's a song we had. I did a demo of it with Martin from our band. It was good music and it had all the elements of a sort of a good midnight all song, but the lyrics that I wrote were just terrible. They were just terrible. I can't, they were so bad. And we recorded the backing track and we had to kind of get on a plane the next day and go and play in America or something, something like that. And Rob walked in and he went, oh, I know, this, I know what this is about. This is about uh, the Rainbow Warrior. And, you know, here comes the Hercules. He just, he, he, you know, here come the submarines sinking, sinking South Pacific dreams. And it was just, ah. And that was like, that's when I really realised that, oh my God, this is very potent, this group of people that can come up with something like that. I couldn't come up with that. There's no way. And, and you have to be open to that. Um, and sometimes you, you, I find collaborative work really rewarding. It can really be the best way to go. Even if you don't like the collaboration, you can always say no. You can fight it, but often it's going to be take it somewhere else and take it higher. Yeah, you all come from bands with multiple songwriters, so... Yeah. You know, has it ever led to fisticuffs? Oh, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Peter Garrett. He's, he's, What's he got? He's got longer reach, hasn't he? Yeah, I wouldn't want to fight yeah. Pete. Um, I think, you know, in our case, it was like whatever the best idea was, one, and you couldn't really fight that. You know, like everyone would kind of go, well, 
I, I think there's always one person in a band too that has the final say as a, as a social group because bands are like there's a mother figure, there's a father figure and then there's a, a child which is totally irresponsible and <laughs> will not listen and then there's like a, a you know, the, the cruel uncle that just loves people's suffering and or just them writhing in agony and then there's the, you know, dot, dot, dot. And then and, uh, I, th I like to think I was the mother figure in the band. <laughs> but I probably wasn't. I was probably the, more like the cruel uncle. But, but, and then there's, there's the one who has the final say. And then uh, they'll always go, hmm, that's what, that was good. Or they'll go, hmm, maybe later for that one. There'll always be someone in there that'll have the, probably like the quiet one. What did Brian Eno say? Listen to the quiet voice. And it really is a bit like that um, in a band. Well, there was no fisticuffs in the mentals that I recall, but there was a certain amount of bitter competition, you know, between the different songwriters to get your songs on the album or as a single. So, but that's kind of useful as well. That that competition in bands also, you know, hopefully means you come up with something interesting or something better or whatever. Mm. Yeah, ours was a bit more gentlemanly, gen gentlemanly and um, passive aggressive. Um. <laughs> Dark, you know, like it, it'd come out five years later in, in some truck stop in Wangaratta at three in the morning, like, it was the way you, you did that and that song that really pisses me off. No, no it was very much more uh, gentlemanly and, um, and uh, you know, built up resentment over a long period of time, probably. <laughs> That's the way it should be, too. That's right. Yeah, the, it's the a, long It's a good description of the go betweens as well. <laughs> Yeah, what about the Gober Twins? Cause, well, know, that's what I thought. I thought, you know, you... I don't how, know. How was it, you how never was it, know. How was it coming into the Gober Twins, a band with two such strong songwriters? And I, I'm listening to Tallulah and uh, 16 Lovers Lane, just yeah. brilliant stuff, just beautiful. Um, how was it coming into that sort of ethos? Because uh, we're going to talk about Cattle and Cain in a minute. I know you didn't write it, but um, how was it coming into that situation? Well, it was a big adventure for me because I was very young at the time and I didn't fully realise in the beginning how respected and what a loyal legion of fans that the band had, which are nevertheless small and cultish. But there was a lot of competition between Robert and Grant, but as Jim said, it was kind of passive-aggressive and not spoken aloud. But I think ultimately, yes, it led to some great songs because usually 10 songs per album, five songs each, only the best five songs made it onto the album. You ended up generally with pretty high quality songs and then the competition for the single and who would get to make the video and yeah, it was it was all about that and there was definitely resentments at times, but I think what band doesn't have that? No, there's no. When we look at the history of many bands, there's often they, you know, they start off getting on pretty well, but they often end up in bitter legal disputes, which is unfortunate. I remember once we supported Crowded House in um, Darwin in mixed relations, and and we were, oh, we'll get to meet the boys afterwards and have a, you know, have a few drinks, and they had this huge fist fight and jumped in the van and pissed <laughs> off. Same with UB40. We played with them in Melbourne. We thought, oh, great, we'll get to meet UB40. Same thing, they had this massive fight in the dressing room and they were all bashing each other up and that. And oh, what the hell, we just went home and had a party on, on our own, yeah? Too bad, eh? So, you know, sometimes you think, oh, you're going to meet your idols and they turn out to be like, you know, just like, like you and... <laughs> <laughs> Doug's, 
So, so getting back to cattle and canis, to me, is like, I was listening to that again for a head. And there's a lot of resemblance between that and Berserk Warriors. I love the way that, in the end, how that vocal bit comes in. It's just totally out of sync. Like, somehow the, it works. And Lindy's drumming is just like something out of Felicuti or something. It's just brilliant. It's like this loop of, it's not in time, it's not out of time. It's just, what, what, do, you, what do you think of that song? Well, it's you know, it's, it's got it? odd timing, hasn't it? It's got yeah, a 5-4 or something. It's a bar of 5, a, a bar of 2 and a bar of 4. So however you want to... That sounds complicated. Yeah, it's complicated and it, it's complicated for a reason, which was that Grant wrote that song and it was one of the first songs he wrote and... He had the riff first that is the backbone of the song, the da-da-da, the dun-dun-dun-dun, and didn't realise that it was in this compound time signature and Lindy fastidiously worked out the division of the bars and the beats and that's how she came up with that part. But I used the word ineptitude before, but it was kind of naive first songwriting I don't think Grant realised what a complicated time signature it actually was and it ended up being the hallmark of the song in a way, as well as the, the lyrics, which are a beautiful story about his father, essentially. And so Australian, that song. Yeah, it's, it's so Australian. It just takes me away, you know, to, you know cattle and cane, just the, the, you know, yeah. the cane fields burning and all that, you know. It's very North Queensland. It just House instantly conjures it. Yeah. Reg, you also played on a great, another great Australian, Sounds of Us by Ganga Jane. You know, I think you played that great solo at the end of that. And that's a great oh, Australian yeah, song yeah, too. Yeah, 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 I did. And the cattle came. I didn't know that. Yeah, that's Reggie's mad solo. Yeah, wow. that's me playing on that one. I heard, that, I heard a, a weird, um, like a 12-inch version of it recently where I'm playing all the way through it. I, must have, I can't remember, but I must have played all the way through it. They only used... <laughs> The bits at the end on the single, the single version. So, wow. But um, yeah, no, I got a hundred dollars for that. <laughs> have, a, have another listen, Mandy. Have a listen. It's great. It comes in this mad, incredible slide solo. You know, in the, in the middle of it, it just takes off. Yeah, it's, it's brilliant. And, and Reg, of course, you know, you, you're a huge Hound Dog Taylor fan, and you actually met Hound Dog, didn't you? I well, I didn't exactly meet him. I saw him. I saw him play twice. I saw him at, play at French's, and then at the Lifesaver. So, uh, French's, what? Yeah, French's. So I was, you know, we, I was pretty close, but I didn't talk to him. He probably would have shot me because he, he, d- he, he had a dispute with his um, Phillips. The, yeah, um, Brewer Phillips, he shot Brewer him. Phillips, he yeah. shot him in the leg. Yeah, they had a, a songwriting dispute and he shot him. <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't talk to each other for 25 years. You know, they'd sit in the front seat of their Cadillac driving along and say, you tell asshole, you know, like they told the, the drummer, Ted Harvey, you tell asshole to pull over soon, I'm going to go for, you know, have a piss or something. They never talked to each other directly. They had to talk through the drummer, which is great. The the drummer was pretty scary too. I was scared of all of them. Pretty pretty tough Chicago blues guys. No one better than the hound dog. In fact, I think think they played on the street a lot like hound dog play played, you know, like sort of busking band to to some extent. Someone told me when they came out, they they went to all the trouble of, um, I think, the promoter, went to the trouble of getting all this, um, these... African-American ladies who lived in, in um, Sydney to prepare all this soul food for them. And they brought it out and they said, you got any KFC? <coughs> when KFC first started in Sydney and they said, oh, luckily there was one in Bondi. So they went, you know, they just went straight there. Uh, well, uh, they, they requested some, um, some drugs too and uh, a friend of mine um, chucked a lump of hash up on stage and they, they, um, they gratefully accepted it. 
<laughs> it was never seen again. Yeah. So, Jim, the song I chose for Midnight Oil, the one that I, I thought was really quintessentially something that's really unique and different, was The Power and the Passion. It, to me, it's, very, you know, it's so Australian and it's got so many elements in it. Particularly, I love the way that the chorus comes in. It, like, it's totally unexpected, that chord that comes in in The Power and the Passion. It's so different to the rest of the song, but it works. And then, of course, the wonderful, we've got Gladys here, the wonderful uh, horn section at the end coming in, just magnificent. So what are your thoughts on that song? What, what do you think makes it? That's sort of, again, this, back to this collaboration thing. It's, um, you know, I've I sort of had the riff for the verse and uh, used to make these demos at home under my mum's garage. She would have been there, under my mum's uh, living room floor in the basement. It's about six inch, six feet high. I could just get in there and um, I'd make demos on a four track. And I used to make cassettes full of all, just music, it was just music. And I didn't, well, what do you think of this? So I'd give it to the boys and they go, well, oh, that's a good riff, okay. So we played it. And then Rob had that chorus and it was in E flat minor, I think, or something, which was, you know, nothing like an E flat minor to shock people. And <laughs> for, in rock and roll, it's like, forget Especially it. Especially for guitarists, yeah. And, um, but that lift was really what made it work. The drum solo, I think, in the middle was a spontaneous thing by Rob, who was very anxious at the time in London and needed a release. So we just put the riff on and he just went and that's all the first take of the drum solo that you hear in the song. And that's a big part of the song, actually, that the drum solo, it's like a hook. You know, there can be hooks in songs that aren't necessarily melodic. They can just be noises or they can be, um, you know, uh, you know, the people use samples like that now in songs. And the horn section thing at the end was just my little thing I had at the end. And um, again, that was in a major key and then it was a good way to end it. So it was sort of an organic thing that had not a lot of guiding principle behind it. It was just a sort of a, a, a conglomerate of ideas that sort of, you know, made the band sound, kind of sound cool. You know, that was the whole thing, wasn't it? To be cool. Like, I'm trying to look cool up here, but I don't feel very cool. Oh, you look pretty good, Jim. Yeah, mate, yeah. I was going to say, um, what's great about it, it's kind of like a, it's almost like an Australian rap, isn't it? You know, like, well, that was the other thing. It's Pete started rapping over it and Pine Gap, Big Mac and all that stuff. And uh, golf was tough till we hit the rough. Uncle Sam and John were quite enough. And that was sort of a great line. And he, he just threw that around. That just, he just came up with that. And uh, Rob had the chorus melody. He's always the good melody man, Rob. And, and Pete could sort of rap out a good verse and, and always had something to say. And, you know, had, had some, you know, something behind it. And I think it's sort of a song about that is Australian. It's, it's very Australian. But we weren't trying to be, you know, the cork hats thing or the sort of trying to be self-consciously Australian. It just came out as because we were Australian and it just was about here. It didn't really spell anything out particularly. You know, it wasn't like a, we're going to write a song about Australia. Like I still call Australia home sort of thing. Nothing wrong with that. But it's a much more diffuse version of what Australia could be rather than a going for the jugular with it, you know, as a, as a songwriter. It's, it's, it was a, it's a much more, um, almost like more like the continent of Australia, like more, more spread out, more, you know, varied. There's much more within it, a lot of variation. So... It's nice to say that, but um, I, I think a lot of our songs were very, were come up with very organically. And as you learn how to write songs, that, that you can lose that. You can lose that sort of innocence. Like you, you were saying with that song, that there was an innocence to the way it was put together, Cattle and Kane. And, and, and in a way, that's sort of what that was too, because we didn't really know how to write songs at that point. And we were always being told, you should get down and write some proper songs. 
And we couldn't do that. Like, we, we kind of learned to do it later, more, more as an exercise for our own amusement, really, to see how we go, you know, whether that was a, a way to go. And, and as we went through the career, we got kind of more crafty about it, about writing songs. Oh, this one is more... Sim we're going to simplify things. For Diesel and Dust, that album, we, we just simplified. We took all the guitar solos out and had choruses and verses and bridges and, and three-minute songs. But that was because we wanted to do it and, the, of course, the record label couldn't, couldn't sort of contain their excitement. <laughs> they were so excited about that. But we, were, we, we weren't... They, they could have never told us what to do. Like we were not, not those sort of people. And... Um, very stubborn kind of people. So, but we had to come up with that idea ourselves, and came full circle. But um, and then, as the band went on, we went into more jam-based writing. We we just write riffs in a rehearsal room and put make songs out of them. Or we tried everything actually in that band. We kind of went all around in circles, uh, you know, chasing songs in different ways of putting them together. I guess that's the way a lot of songs are written, aren't they? Yeah. Like, you're just sort of jamming and you come up with some chord it and they go, be. oh, that sounds good, let's do that. You know, no, that's that happened yeah. a lot with mixed relations and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, I remember we were rehearsing a song, uh, you know, Take It or Leave It, um, and, and Bart, um, and another song called Black and White, um, Mixed Relations. And I remember when Bart came up with the lyrics, it was like listening to Jeremiah, the prophet, you know, talking about the fall of Babylon, you know, fall of Judah or something. It was just like a chill went down my spine to hear these lyrics coming from, you know, it was just so um, prophetic and incredible. So sometimes people just come up with that stuff, eh? Hey? Yeah, that's the, that's the magical um, aspect because you often think, well, I didn't really, didn't really come up with that. It's to come from somewhere else, especially the songs that come very quickly. That those to me are the best ones where you you know the words and the the melody come together pretty much in one go, and that doesn't happen that often. But when that happens, you think, oh. I didn't really do that. Mm. It just came through you like you were just there and it just came through you like a... You, you just were open and it just sort of came through you. Like a channel, like, yeah. Like I a think, lightning bolt. I think Tom Waits is like that. I think Archie Roach used to say that... He said to me, he wrote... And they took the children out. We just woke up one morning and just, you just wrote it down. He sort of had it in the dream, but basically you know, the whole song was just complete. Yeah, no, that's, that's like um, um, satisfaction, I think, the riff. Um, it, he came up with the riff in a, in a dream and woke up, taped it, and then woke up in the morning. Well, that's the other that thing about good. writing songs is you can you can sort of come up with things. And, and if you... I, I mean, if any songwriters are out there, I suspect there might be a few. Everyone has different ways of doing it. I remember working with Neil Finn, and he wouldn't have any lyrics at all, and he'd just jam, and he'd get a, this kind of Irish kind of thing happening, this feel, and, and he'd have these amazing chords and weird riffs and things that with dummy lyrics that were phonetically based, they weren't uh, lyrically cogent at all. Then he'd come back later and do the lyrics, whereas someone like Don Walker comes in and writes the lyrics so thoroughly in a book and it just refines them and refines them until they're just, there's no fat left on the lyrics at all. They just come round and round and round until there's just, that's it. Like, it's like, you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls, like, that's it. And then in the last ten minutes writes the chords and the melody. Like there's, there's, there's no rules to it. It's just, there's none. It's just how you want to do it. I must say I find it easier to start with the words and then put a melody to yeah, it than yeah. to have a melody and, put, yeah. you know, put the words to it later. Yeah, yeah, because maybe the words suggest the melody, yeah. Yeah, they often Deeply. do. They, they, they come together, they yeah. occur together. Yeah. I just wanted to ask you quickly, you guys, um, do you think it's um, possible to write a, 
like songs that are written for um, purely for commercial gain. Do you think it's possible to write a great song? Like um, we've only just begun. That you know, beautiful Carpenter song was actually written for a bank commercial by John Williams of all people. And Richard Carpenter, young Richard Carpenter, heard it and said, "Well, could you you know, would you mind if I wrote a little bit of a you know, of, of, of a middle eight to it and stuff like that?" He said, "Yeah, sure, mate, go for it." And um, you know, of course, uh, I could think of the monkeys' entire oeuvre. You know, think of the songs written for them. I mean, just absolutely classic songs. Can anyone, you know, what do you think of that? Oh, I think, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, commercial stuff can be great. It's there's no there's no rules. That's what's good about all art forms. There's there's no rules. You can do what you want. Anything can be good. Anything, you know, even if it's tainted by extreme commercialism, can still be great. Well, you know, pop music. It's a popular music. It's like that's come from the word popular. So it's sort of that. That's what people seem to like that what's popular because it means more people like it i mean it's like that kind of the monkeys was a obviously a, a, a group that was created uh, in by hollywood executives for a tv show but they happened to employ these amazing songwriters like you know neil diamond at that point and boyce and hart and all these great writers and they had amazing songs and they and that's what you remember about the monkeys if the monkeys did a gig now they'd all play all of those songs because everyone loves those songs, and that's what popular music is, people loving songs. Pleasant Valley Sunday, that's a banging song, isn't it? When you wrote, was that Mickey Dolan's? No, that? it was... Um, uh, uh, was Carol it? King. Carol King, yeah. Carol, Carol King. King. It's such a great song. It's just an absolutely amazing song, and their arrangement of it is so great. Last Train to Clarksville. Was, you know, that Last Train to Clarksville was actually a Vietnam protest, Vietnam War protest song that kind of slipped under the teeny bopper radar, I think, you know? Another weird one of theirs was the cuddly toy. Oh, yeah. Harry Nilsson, yeah, that was, yeah we, won't, we won't go into that. Yeah, in this oh, let's go into Harry Nilsson. I love <laughs> Harry. Yeah, that's right. Subject matter. Yeah. Wow. Um, Amanda, what do you think? About what? About, you know, do you think, what's your favourite commercial pop song? That I can think of, um, I reckon, um, uh, you know, it's Aqua Barbie Girl. I reckon that's a great song. And um, Can't Get You Out of My Head, Kylie Minogue. It's another fantastic commercial song. You know, obviously written for a pop, manufactured pop idol, you know. Streets of our town, <laughs> not really. <laughs> it was not a hit. Yeah, look, as everyone's saying, there's no rules and, and, and sometimes the dumbest things are the greatest things as well. I mean, look at, look at the Ramones. Look at, hey, little girl, I want to be your boyfriend. It's not rocket science literature, but it's a great song. I mean, Streets of Our Town is brilliant, but it's because people love it that, it, that it's popular, so... That's then it's commercial, and then even bands can lose the love of the song that they wrote because it becomes popular. It's a strange, sort of weird, twisted thing that people don't even want to play their Except own music. Except it actually wasn't commercial. It, it wasn't. wasn't. It? it was never a hit. It was to me. <laughs> it's, had a real, it's had a real revival, hasn't it? I keep hearing Has it on it? TV. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's like bands like Velvet Underground. They didn't have any radio hits at the time, but everyone knows their songs and they get played all the time. Now, you know, yeah, so, yeah. so there's, there's a few bands like that. Which and Grant are, and Robert you know. would love that analogy, Reg. <laughs> <laughs> I used to hate playing Sad Face. I mean, I hate playing um, Live It Up. But um, that was, you know, the Mental's biggest hit. And um, it wasn't my favourite song. But I remember we were playing in Wyala and all this big bikey came up to us, you know, surrounded by his, his, his mates and said, play Sad Face, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Greedy's like, OK. <laughs> Just towering over us, yeah. Play sad face. <laughs> yeah, one day we didn't play Beds Are Burning and, and uh, I think someone was in the loo and these guys came in the loo in America and said, who do they think they are, the Grateful Dead? 
you know, not playing their hit. You know, the only one time we didn't do it and, um, you know, we ended up just keep doing it. Because, and in a way, a song like that, you can inhabit a song any way you want. You don't have to play it the same way every night. In fact, I'd, I wouldn't ever know how to play any of our songs after a while. You just go, well, I don't know what I'm going to do. You'd know the song, but you could play any way you want on the song. So you could all constantly reinvent it. So it was always, it was a bit like Alzheimer's. You'd come back to it every day and it's different. Yeah, I always think it's a bit... Alzheimer's is actually quite a good thing for a performing musician. <laughs> I always think it's a bit selfish when bands, you know, they'll, yeah. they, they won't play any of their old hits. They just not, play, not their new, play, play their new record, and which, which, you know, might be great, but, you know, you, you need to play, you need to keep the punters a little bit happy. I like your old stuff better than your new stuff. Yeah, good, you tell I remember Martin Plaza made an interesting observation once. He said, look, you know, you, as a songwriter, you get better with age, but no one wants to know because you're too old. Um, and, and it's true with Martin, you know, and, and same with Jim, and uh, I'm sure all you guys, you know, some, of the, um, some of yours, Amanda, your new songs, and um, Reg's songs with Dog Trumpet, they just get better and better and more crafty as songs, you know, but, you know, everyone wants to listen to, you know, Beyonce or whatever, you know. I don't know, you know, it's, just, it's a sad fact of life, you know, unless you're young and groovy, you know, you're not going to get a look in. Yeah, I don't know. You mentioned the Tower of Song before. I really believe in that idea. That, that it's just a great song is a great song and Will You Love Me Tomorrow is still a great song whenever it comes on or, or you know, uh, Goffin and King or it could be something that came out last week. And, and um, you know, you really don't... Even some Harry Styles stuff I really like. I think well, that's really enduring stuff. Some, some of it is really great. You know, and you kind of... You, you know, I just can be sort of ageist about it too, but I, I really think that's... Um, the best stuff's all still ahead of us, really. I mean, but there's some great stuff in the past, surely, that we're all a product of, and as the generations move through. My grandson loves Harry Styles. I just, I'm subjected to Harry Styles on, a, on an hourly basis. I like Taylor Swift. She, she yeah. writes some good songs. Yeah, she's a great She's a good lyricist, writes some great lyrics. Oh. Yeah, there's always, yeah it's, it's always going to be good, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think when a really good song is written, I think that... That the, uh, somewhere in the eighth dimension, the, uh, the nine muses all high-five each other. That's to me, I think, you know, when a song, you write a really good song, it doesn't really matter. It's, as long as you know it's good, and it sort of strikes a chord in the universe and makes it a better, the world a better place. So, look, we might wind it up. Let's have a few quick questions from the audience. Um, Jefferson Lee, well-known shitster and feature writer with Trad and Now magazine, Trad for Tradition and Now for Contemporary. Um, I got bones to pick with Amanda for her interview with uh, Stuart, Stuart uh, on Community Radio 2SCR, who said there'd be a few copies of your personal album, which will be launched, I think, at the City Re Recital Centre at the end of the month at Red Eye Records. I went in there and they said, we've got thousands of them and I nearly got a parking ticket trying to buy your $20 CD, and I've got a bone to pick with uh, Reg Mombasa for giving me... Security. A, a, a free ride, a free ride in my taxi I gave you, and you said I'd put your name down at the Maroubra Seals, but it didn't, it didn't include a ticket for my lady friend at the time, and you said you're non-violent. I had five Tongan bouncers willing to punch me out of the room if I demanded two tickets at the door. Anyway, uh, on uh, Cattle and Cane... Sorry about that. It, it's, 
Yeah, uh, cattle and cane, it's that double riff where it seems to be coming back on itself in the uh, guitar solo towards the end that really captivates just about everyone. Was that intentional or accidental? Well, I wasn't there for, for the recording of it, but I think it probably, I'm guessing, came about as a result of the unusual rhythm. As Murray sort of said, it sounds almost African. It's got that circular thing going on. And so I think it was just, yeah, it, it was a happy accident as often the best parts of songs or pieces of music are accidents and they come out of the blue in a really pleasantly surprising way. Absolutely. All right, look, I'd just like to say a big thank you. Um, I know it's, um, it's an incredible thing to, uh, for, for me and Amanda to cross um, Anzac Parade and Jim to come down uh, from uh, back down the gong and Reg to come all the way from Glebe. But um, let's have a big hand for these absolutely fantastic musicians. And uh, thank you so much for your insights. Thank you very much, everyone. Some homework for us all there. Go channel your inner rock star. I want to see what songs you come up with. We heard from Midnight Oil's Jim Magini and Murray Cook, Mental as Anything's Reg Mombasa, Amanda Brown, violinist for The Go-Betweens, with a panel, Songwriting, Muse or Machination, from Sydney's 2023 Addie Road Writers' Festival. And I do wonder if artificial intelligence, AI, will play a role in this very human and heart-led pursuit that is songwriting. And I'm hosting a power panel debating AI and the creative arts at the Wheeler Centre in Melbourne on Thursday the 27th of July. Details on the Big Ideas website. You can scroll down and look for Be In Our Audience. Uh, It got booked up, I think, pretty quickly, but there is a wait list you can join. You can find and share Big Ideas episodes from the ABC Listen app. I'm Natasha Mitchell. Big thanks to producer Alan Whedon and Karen Zavanovitz and uh, sound engineer David LeMay. Bye from us. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.